This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to New Books Network South Asia channel. Today, uh, here I am, Pratichi, and we have Professor Usha Iyer with us. Uh, Dr. Usha Iyer is an assistant professor in the Film and Media Studies Department at Stanford University. She is the author of Dancing Women, Choreographing Corporeal Histories of Hindu Cinema, which we would be discussing today. The book has been awarded the 2022 British Association of South Asian Book Prize and shortlisted for the Oscar G. Brockett Book Prize for Dance Research by the Dance Studies Association. She is also the Associated Editor of South Asia Journal of South Asian Studies. Welcome, Usha. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks so much, Pratichi, for this invitation. I'm such a fan of the New Books Network, um, and it's become a regular pandemic time companion on long walks. So I really appreciate being invited to discuss my not-so-new book, but um, we've had a pandemic this whole time. So I feel like we're all catching up with, uh, with all the publications of the past few years. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's still very much fresh in our minds. <laughs> so, so no, I, I do think it's a very much legit a new book. So just to start with, uh, uh, why did you decide to write this book? Like, why did you think this book must be important to read and write? The origins of this book go back to my PhD dissertation at the University of Pittsburgh. I was a film studies student, didn't even initially plan to work on Indian cinema, but once I'd started writing papers within the, the academic field of film studies, I discovered I just had this archive in my head of um, all the Indian films that I'd grown up watching. And so as this kind of, um, I started kind of trying to think about a topic that I would want to write a dissertation on, the field of film dance, uh, I discovered was was a neglected area within scholarship within the kind of very robust scholarship on Indian film studies. Um, there has been, uh, there have been really interesting articles and books, book-length studies of playback singing of music. Uh, and we know that the song and dance sequence is one of the most distinctive formal features of commercial Indian cinema. And yet there were very few um, academic studies of dance on screen. And that's what attracted me to studying this. And I think a few years of research into that made it really apparent that the book would have to foreground and highlight the work of women. Um, Because, say, unlike um, the Hollywood musical, where, you know, dancers like Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly are the most discussed stars of the Hollywood musical, in popular Indian cinemas, it's often 
women who were doing the dancing, especially in what I call production numbers, which we can talk about in a bit. Um, and so it became uh, quite apparent to me that uh, this work had to be front and center in analysis of gender and sexuality in relation to on-screen dance. Um, and so that's how I got interested and I began to do this work. I'm not a dancer myself, um, but I realized I need to start training in dance um, in order to do this work. Um, I happened to be in India to do archival research and I started training in Odyssey uh, in Delhi um, and that is the, the richness of embodied knowledge that dance scholars actually alert us to. Uh, and this project has been an interdisciplinary journey of bringing dance studies and film studies in conversation with each other. And um, it was my own embodied experience of extremely um, tired and, uh, and hurting thighs, for example, after an, a one hour of Odyssey training, um, that made me, that alerted me to the importance of talking about labor, training, um, the kind of knowledges that the body can give us in discussing what is this dematerialized kind of form on screen. Um, and I think that centrally was what informed the subtitle of the book, The Corporeal Histories of Hindi Film Dance. Um, and so the, the book has taken shape across all of these, both academic and personal embodied experiences of dance. Yeah, interesting. And this kind of intersects with like how the personal and the intellectual overlaps and also bring in, bring like generate very interesting conversations. So just to kind of like to help the, help our listeners. So what would you be, what do you think are the main kind of arguments or the main points that you want to make in the book and how you have organized it and maybe just share the rationale uh, behind that? So the, um, the study of spectacle um, in popular cinemas, whether of Hollywood, uh, of Mexican cinema, of Indian cinema, has always been kind of seen through this ideological lens of the work done by the narrative versus the spectacular interruptions or attractions of the popular film form. Um, and this then studies say, the, the female performer, the spectacular female dancer, through this lens of ideological suspicion. So Laura Mulvey's famous uh, theorization in um, visual culture and narrative cinema is about um, the, the showgirl, and this was, you know, often in Busby Berkeley films onwards, the showgirl as this kind of static object of erotic contemplation by the male spectator. So the male gaze has been the central way to read the performing woman. And I do, in the book, kind of pay attention to that. There is no denying that that is part of the industrial work, the impetus for showcasing female bodies on screen. Um, but there are other kinds of ways of looking at, uh, at the dancing women that, is the, that are the kind of main animators of my book. And that is an attention to industrial practices, to personnel, to the people who actually make these bodies come alive on screen. There are multiple layers of who is at work to kind of produce this on-screen figuration, this composite assemblage, so that the dancing body on screen is not just that individual who has also trained for many years, who has rehearsed for many weeks to make this song and dance spectacle, um, but it's a composite of multiple bodies. 
We can get into the details, but to give you an overview, I think what the book does is to move from ideological readings of spectacular forms, cinematic forms, to a material and cultural analysis of film dance. And I think the the term corporeal histories is really central because one, it calls our attention to corporeality in ways that have uh, not been done as much as this kind of recent push to material studies has attuned us to doing. Um, and then what does that corporeality, that attunement to corporeality do to history writing itself? Those might be the two questions. And I think um, I think of corporeal histories along three main areas. Um, One is just the simple figure of the dancing woman on screen. So I attend to gestural histories, right? The gesture, the gestures that these women are trained into are so important for a study of dance. And you cannot talk about Hindi film dance without thinking about the various quote-unquote classical, quote-unquote folk dance forms um, that circulate across this the, the Indian subcontinent. And I problematize those terms of folk and classical in, in the chapters that follow. So there are those physical gestures of the dancers themselves, but also the gestures of technology. How do we read uh, the dancing body, the corporeal physical body of the human in relation to non-human elements and their gestures? And so the dancing woman then becomes actually central to bringing together multiple technological changes. I talk about the turn to color, uh, changes in editing, set building, art direction, etc. So gestural histories is one. It leads us then to labor histories. Um, How do we talk about both the on and behind the screen work of the multiple bodies that produce the the singular on-screen body? The singular, but also the foregrounded dancing heroine, because often behind the main dancing performers are the backup dancers, what we call background dancers in popular Indian cinemas. Um, So we pay attention to all of these laboring bodies, the multiple years of training that they bring to it, And labor histories also make us attend to the affective um, kind of ecologies around the cinema, right? What has been left out as narratives of joy and pride in people's work, but also complaints about exhaustion, um, about oppression, uh, about... Uh, I talk about how Vaida Rehman complains about how her Bharatanatyam skills were underused. Um, so there are all of these affective modalities that come up as well when we talk about labor histories. So we're constantly shifting between individual and group, which then produces the book's central attention to collaboration and co-choreography, that we move away from singular figures of history making to collective, to collectives. Um, And then the third level of the corporeal history, which again builds from gestural and labor histories, is material histories. Um, These are both the the materials of, as we have discussed, the human body and caste, class, gender, sexuality, race are central aspects of telling these material histories, but also how the body interacts with materials. So sets and costumes, cameras, editing, um, the very material of celluloid, of built environments, right? So what is the constant engagement between the built environment and the technology that's capturing it? I think all of these together produce the dancing woman as 
not just a discursive figure, as most definitely a discursive figure, which is what earlier ideological readings of performance have alerted us to, but also as a set of material social practices. Uh, and that, I think, is the new work that many people within film and media studies and other fields, and these are interdisciplinary works, and that's, I think, the richness of interdisciplinary work. The minute you're working with a field like dance studies, a field like gender and sexuality studies, performance studies, you are forced to think about um what I talk about, the neuromusculature of the dancing woman, right? Uh, that foregrounds labor, um, that um, makes us think about bodies as knowledge, bodies as archives, bodies as histories. Um, these are, you know, always in motion and therefore very complex. And we're unable to just capture them. Uh, this book is just one attempt to capture a certain kind of history. And I think it leaves a whole number of questions um, in the epilogue, but also in the introduction. It's a constant invitation to keep building the multiple histories we need to tell still. Um, the body is shaped and defined and disciplined, of course, by ideology, but dance and dancing women in particular alert us to how they move through and against these ideological structures that define them. Um, and then just to close off the response on history, what does this do to how we tell histories? Um, it kind of forces us to think about multiple histories constantly, intersecting multiple histories um, that, um, for example, let me just give an example. When I began chapter three, uh, I wanted to study the 1930s. It's a very central period for the embourgeoisement, the Sanskritization, the gentrification of dance, right? Through the marginalization of hereditary performers. And I was, I kept reading Sadhana Bose's name mentioned you know, very, um, just a, a kind of fleeting mention of her name in histories of Indian film music and dance. And so I said, this is a figure clearly that I need to go um, excavating and finding out about her life. And I, it seemed initially like an easy enough story to tell. Here is a Bhadra Mahila, an upper caste, upper class woman from a Brahmo fam family, um, you know, has trained and engaged with Tagore, Uday Shankar at different points. Um, and then I, as I keep going through the materials, these ephemeral historical archives of song booklets, of the occasional mention in multiple language uh, magazines, I come across another figure like Azuri, who is a German Indian um, Jewish Brahmin uh, figure um, who completely changes then the way I approach Bose. Um, but instead of creating a binary of, you know, uh, caste oppressed or in this case, you know, very different racial figurations of these two figures, um, I began to think one also reads then rumors of Sadhna Bose dying in penury, um, begging in the streets of Calcutta. So suddenly all of these upturn are settled notions of people's kind of social positions um, and how dance is actually what keeps moving these women across regions, across class positionalities. Um, it forced me then to think about these two figures together, to think about co-choreographing mobilities and how the women's question itself gets fundamentally changed when we think about it through these dancing women, right? So this is an example of how corporeality and paying attention to things like anecdote and gossip, um, looking at popular um, 
<laughs> blogs on dancers uh, where students of Azuri and Sadhana Bose kind of talk about their experiences of learning from these women really produce an undercut kind of traditional histories. Yeah, I mean, that's that's really amazing. I mean, the way you kind of summarized everything and like touched upon all the themes and I would just now try to just kind of flesh out some of the main themes that you kind of mentioned. And although I initially thought that I would talk about this later on uh, in our interview, but I, I couldn't help uh, just starting out with that because since you mentioned Laura Malvi and like, because I think something I probably didn't have a chance to talk to you earlier in our earlier uh, discussions is that we do like in terms of dancing numbers, we always think in terms of the male gaze and the exploitation. And uh, and here you are kind of foregrounding pleasure as as a, as a performing artist, especially I remember your interview with uh, Wahida Rahman and it's like, okay, like the training and the joy and the, and also the joy of performing. And uh, so that's, that's something I found to be uh, really a, a very important intervention into think I mean I mean like agency is a very complicated word but just to kind of foreground pleasure in the production of dancing numbers or or to generate certain specific aesthetic appeals and I, I, I really like that part and I just wanted you to kind of maybe talk a little bit on that because I don't recall we, we um, talked about this before but yeah Thank you for attending to pleasure and for being pleasured by the attention to pleasure. I think there's something there about us as our own gaze that we train upon these bodies, right? And what attracts us. You are studying dance histories um, and and dancing women in particular yourself as well. Um, there is, it's not just the objects of study, but the gaze that we train upon these objects that produce certain modes of reading. Um, and I was just always struck by how the, the male gaze argument never fully captured, for example, queer feminist pleasures taken in um, spectacular dance numbers. Of course, we know uh, oppression is rife in industrial formations of all kinds, so that the cinema is no outsider to that. Um, and that filmmakers um, would often say, oh, once you have Vaijanti Mala or Madhuri Dikshit in a film, we must exploit their skills. Um, so there is an open language of exploitation. But that doesn't just produce this kind of... Um, binary framework of liberatory and oppressive energies circulating within any industrial formation. I think I speak about uh, dance musicalization early on in the book only to argue for how dancing women rest authorship um, so that we stop thinking of films as Bimal Roy films or, you know, as Satyajit Ray's film on Bala Saraswati. She reported finding it very uncomfortable to dance on sand on the beach um, so that the very figure of the auteur gets undercut when we think about other authors, multiple authors. And then clearly the dancer heroine herself is often somebody who's from an oppressor caste, upper class, bourgeois women, right? It was their entry into the cinema that actually facilitated the embourgeoisement of dance. Hari Krishnan discusses this at length in his book, Celluloid Classicism, about um, dance in Tamil and Telugu cinemas. Um, 
And so I think it's interesting that many of us are now beginning to work on this across various regions because we also need to have a discussion about region. But returning to the question of pleasure, one, it was absolutely central to think about our spectatorial pleasure and to analyze that pleasure and to find other frameworks to explain it. And the other, like you rightly pointed out, was the pleasure of the performers and this choreo-musicking body. There were musicians, there were uh, background dancers who took great pride in their work. Um, Nidhi Tuli's documentary, The Saroj Khan Story, was one such um, document that alerted me to Saroj Khan's pride. And then she had some of these friends who worked with her as backup dancers. Um, All of them spoke very fondly about the work they had done or... um, the work on Edwina Leon's, uh, which is this you know self-published book, um, and these informal networks of fandom for dance were really important for my capturing all of these um, energies of desire and pleasure around dancing pe- dancer performers. Um, so Edwina would also talk about the Anglo-Indian experience. You know, she lived in Baikala. She would get called on set. Uh, they would often be sitting around in a group, and Raj Kapoor would walk by and ask them to come to set to work. They were people who were doing social dancing as Anglo-Indians in clubs. But the but a director like Raj Kapoor wanted to kind of mobilize that energy and bring it to the cinema. So there are multiple kind of multiple um, social performances that are being harnessed by uh, popular Hindi cinema. Um, there are actors who who are kind of noticed and brought into the cinema only because of dance. So Vahida Rahman performs uh, in Telugu and Tamil films before she is noticed by Gurudath and invited to work in CID. And so we can think of her as, and she was doing what would now be called item numbers, right? Not in that they were salacious, but that they were inserted into films purely to add, one of them was actually inserted after the film was made. They said, we need something that will attract audiences and will bring back repeat audiences. I think in that concept of repeat audience is already the that we return for the pleasure, the spectatorial pleasure of watching these numbers. And so that's how she caught the attention of an auteur like Gurudad, who then she felt did not use, utilize her dance skills. I mentioned how he talks about how she was able to perform Abhinaya very well in Janekya Tunekahi, in Pyasa. Uh, But what she wanted was for her whole body to to have that expressive freedom. And so she insisted to Vijayanand when he he invited her to work on Guide, she said, you can cut my dialogue scenes, but do not cut any of my dance numbers. And I find Guide a really, it wasn't a film that I liked as much as, say, Pyasa or Chaudhvin Ka Chand, you know, as a film scholar itself, you are beholden to these hierarchies of taste of what is a better film, what is a good film, right? Um, it was only when I started talking to Vaida Rahman or read her interviews with Nasreen Munni Kabir that I became kind of attuned to where her pleasure and desires lay. They did not lie in these, you know, uh, male auteur imaginations. Her desire was constantly to be seen as a Bharatanatyam trained dancer who wanted a script that would allow her to perform those roles. Um, 
Madhuri Dixit, when I interviewed her as well, said, Choli Ke Piche Kya Hai remains her favorite number because it was so difficult. She talks about the joy with which she and Saroj Khan designed this. She said, we decide we'd never repeat our steps from one song to the next. We would always give the public something new. Um, right. So there was so much collaboration and um, and meditation, profound meditations on their own desires as performers and eliciting spectatorial pleasure as well. So I think this is what um, and speaking to performers, speaking to people who work within the industry is actually very central. This kind of removal and reading uh, from the outside is actually what distances us from the kind of affective flows and ecologies that are actually circulating among the actual makers of um, cinematic, of media products. I'm glad. I'm so glad uh, that you kind of mentioned about this because as also a kind of aspiring dance researcher, this is always a very fraught question if you are talking from your positionality and about people who are probably not from your positionality and talking about their pleasure. So it's always a very, very fraught question and it's not to deny that there are of course hierarchies, there are certain bounds of the structure but also to just kind of uh, hear about pleasure like as as a performing artist is also something like I think we need to take into consideration so I'm so glad that you kind of brought this up in the book and also in our conversation so yeah thank you <laughs> so I think uh, you do talk also you did talk a lot about the material history the importance of looking at dancing body is beyond ideological inscription. And I also found that to be very important and a very important intervention in terms of how we view dance, uh, both in bo- both in our like daily life and also in academia to a certain extent. I do re- recall reading uh, Priya Srinivasan's work for the first time in my gra- like early coursework years. And I was fascinated that, okay, like this is how you can think in terms of laboring body because I think art as labor, dance as labor has hardly been kind of focus of historical studies. So, I mean, I just wanted to kind of know a little more, like if you want to flesh it out a little more for our listeners, that what this reading materially of the body brings us, uh, brings things to us, like gives new insight to uh, thinking about gender, spectatorship and the medium of Hindu cinema. So, yeah. Um, So I think there are multiple ways that a material analysis of media can take. And um, I'm exploring some of it very differently in my upcoming project. But I think what this book and writing this book alerted me to is um, kind of coaxing a reading of behind the scenes of pro-filmic work of labor from what you see on screen. And the amount of work and the multiple methodologies one needs to kind of mobilize in order to do that work. So it's a mixture of textual reading, but it cannot stop at textual reading. It is. Um, it has to also include ethnographic work, um, interviews, uh, looking at informal kind of uh, fan-based cultures built around the image. Um, All of these have to kind of these multimodal strategies are required when you need to, when you want to discuss labor and material histories. One example that um, 
I, I, I've heard readers of the book tell me more recently because it's uh, I've had a lot of interaction with people who have read the book since is how they're now alerted to watching, say, that three to six minute on screen dance spectacle. But to then think about all the work that went into making it. Um, so one, you're no longer erasing the other bodies that you see on screen, right? These and unlike, say, a Busby Berkeley spectacle, a Hollywood musical, even of the 50s, these bodies are not uniform. And I think that tells us something about the very logics of the industrial production of popular Indian cinemas. Um, that these are, and then we are constantly alerted by that to the class and caste differences between the kind of foregrounded performers, the heroes and the heroines, and the backup dancers. Um, but we also see then the in behind the screen time of three to six minutes, we see the many weeks and months that it took to rehearse. To, so training and rehearsal are absolutely central and haven't been paid enough attention to. And I'm hoping my book just begins to signal these many areas. And I'm already seeing a lot of young scholars doing this work um, of being there on sets right now, you know, um, soon after the, the worst of the pandemic lockdowns. People are already back on the field and doing this work. There are really fabulous Instagram accounts uh, that are discussing various Kathak sequences and interviewing performers, etc. So you think about training and rehearsal, and I think what we need is a kind of phenomenological study of rehearsal. What are the... Um, the kind of how is the body occupying space and time in the period of rehearsal? What is the difference between rehearsal and the multiple takes of actual shooting? Um, these are all really important questions that we need to spend time with. But then you go one layer further back and you think about the years of training that those bodies have even brought to this rehearsal. Um, right. So not just the dance trained bodies, but say the carpenter, um, are they have they gotten this training as part of their kind of caste position? Are you born into being a carpenter? Are you born into being, you know, or the painters, the dress balas? Um, and then you, there, it gives you a way of reading political economy through these kind of micro histories of labor on set. Um, this kind of the, the and then we think further back to the histories and traditions that these professions fold with in earlier centuries. So you cannot think of the uh, dancing heroine, you cannot think of Madhuri Dixit's Kathak-trained body without thinking, going back to 1882, the anti-notch movement, um, the marginalization of uh, hereditary performers, um, you have to then bring all of these multiple histories of dance, of women, of media and their histories into the study of this one on-screen dance number, right? So that the on-screen dance number then gives us this multi-scalar kind of palimpsest of multiple temporalities and the many laboring bodies and the many accounts of oppression and pleasure and agency, which, like you said, is a very complex, um, a complex uh, kind of um, phenomenon, a, a complex concept, uh, and a one that so easily can move us into binaries. Um, that that to stay away from it, I think there's a constant emphasis in the book on multiplicity. Yeah. So uh, I think 
kind of segueing with the folding over idea and like that that gender is kind of a central thematic of this book and i wanted to kind of highlight that in the last three chapters you do kind of pick up two main figures like be it sadhana bose azuri there's wahid rahman vijayanti mala and then we have saroj khan and madhuri dikshit and you kind of emphasis on their collaborative uh, efforts in kind of generating certain cinematic appeal and and as well as also enable certain gendered mobilities both on screen as well as off screen and i what i wanted to kind of ask you is that what this idea about folding over each other or like slash co choreographing slash collaboration tells us about uh, the dancing women of hindi cinema which the idea of competition which is again like something that you started the book with uh, doesn't give us like it's a very common trope to pit one heroine with uh, against one another and not as collaborators because i think that is also an important intervention that you are making in the book so yeah just would want to hear a little more on that i do start the book like you mentioned with one of the famous dance offs um of between three very key dancer actors of the 1950s and 60s so i begin with mukabla humse na karo from the 1969 from prince i think <laughs> the year um with shami kapoor vijayanti mala and helen and i think what this dance off helps me to do is that instead of kind of the the typical way of reading this as a clash between tradition in the form of vijayanti mala's bharatanatyam trained body and modernity in the form in the body of helen's you know um spiritedly internationalist she's kind of bringing in dance forms from multiple places so she does belly dance and a whole bunch of latin dances etc instead of reading the dance off as just a um east versus west tradition versus modernity model um we begin to think about actually like i said earlier when you go behind the scenes and listen and you kind of attune your gaze and your ear to anecdote to what the women themselves were saying helen and vijayanti mala both say they were each other's favorite dancing women in hindi cinema and they would wait for an opportunity to dance together and so they have a few dance offs in their entire career and they both be there's a kind of sense of pining and waiting and being excited for each other a number of readers have pointed out to the very queer lesbian energies underneath these kind of narratives that i'm that i'm kind of um and uh, kind of describing as the kind of stories of the performing women that alert us to their desires as well and i think that's that is very much of a piece with telling material histories that um that want to capture desire and joy and pride these are multiple affective energies right and uh, they do queer a kind of a straight quote unquote narrative of a heteropatriarchal industry brimming with male auteurs etc right suddenly we are telling the story through women and these queer energies start bubbling to the surface um it's not a way of writing them into some kind of queer history in a way of fixing them uh, but the queerness lies very much in that kind of ephemerality and scandal in gossip these are the places we turn to to tell these histories of queerness in the global south um 
And I think what the dance-off also points us to is the inadequacy of a tradition modernity model of social change. We have seen it in multiple humanities kind of um, discussions of decolonization, of um, what happens in the po in the period of the post-colonial nation formation period, right? The inadequacy of that model becomes considerably apparent when we consider the many conflicting cultural negotiations at work in this entire 19th to 20th century history of the embourgeoisement of dance. So both in the anti-notch movement, I think scholars like Devish Soneji, for example, have told us much more textured histories of that period, of the hereditary dancer as already a very modern figure, both in terms of, you know, capturing these energies. So there, there is the Irish Notuswaram, for example, that hereditary dancers in the South had created um, through bringing together Irish folk songs and Sadiratam uh, kind of performance gestures. Um, so there are these multiple. And then when the Sangeet Natak Academy comes in as this force in the 1950s to kind of decide what is going to be a classical dance, what it can may be deemed as an official folk dance, etc. Here is again the state coming and trying to enforce these um, uh, kind of um, casteist, classist notions and how women should perform within that is has to be very strictly coded. That is, gender is at the heart of that project of embourgeoisement. We know this also from the rich scholarship on actresses in popular Indian cinemas, right? How a certain kind of Bhadra Mahila, a cultured lady, had to be brought into the cinema in the 30s and 40s in order to make the cinema itself an acceptable bourgeois form. This is all part of the kind of cultural nationalist movement in the early 20th century. Um, but the dancer, actress, and reading their co-collaboration, as you pointed out in chapter after chapter, really queers that. Because now we are reading through sets of women coming from very different backgrounds, each of them engaging with both the film industry and this kind of apparatus of cultural nationalism at multiple really key periods. The book wasn't intended to be chronological. I'm often asked, why did you leave out the 70s and 80s? And uh, I, I wasn't thinking in those terms. I was thinking of key moments. And actually, there are very important stories to be told about the 70s and 80s. Um, I, I haven't told them. I'm looking forward to others telling those stories. But I picked the 30s, 40s, the 50s, 60s, and then the 90s as these key moments when um, the female performer is a central node of articulating the women's question through which really pressing questions about nation and culture are being formulated. Censorship is a big part of these negotiations, right? But when we suddenly tell the story as a set of creative collaborations, and maybe all these women didn't necessarily collaborate with each other. We don't know if Shadma Basu and Bose and um, Azuri collaborated with each other. But in my reading of them, I'm producing, I'm injecting them with my queer feminist desires. Um, so that kind of energy between these figures produces then a kind of relational network rather than, like I said earlier, right, these histories being told by singular figures. Or um, I really like thinking about 
the 90s, this period that has been written about extensively, whether in discourses of globalization, economic deregulation, changes in consumer consumer um, capital, capital um, in kind of consumerism in India, etc. I loved telling that story in the fifth chapter through the figures of Saroj Khan and Madhuri Dixit. Um, that is not how we think about telling the story, right? But to think about um, how they are recreating, uh, they're producing a new female body that is attentive to these changes in the realm of political economy. They fold together the figures of the vampire and the heroine and they produce a new body. And that is a story that Saroj Khan, who is a, a profound embodied archive of Hindi cinema's industrial practices, as someone who starts off as a backup dancer in the 50s and died only recently as one of the most acclaimed choreographers. It's a very long um, and difficult story. Um, of her. And if we just took that one figure, we realized there is no easy story of agency to be told here as well. There are constant narratives of, um, of being overlooked, of being invisibilized, of being actively oppressed, uh, some, and, and yet of uh, making the figure of the choreographer visible. Right? But she tunes into what, to something in the air that something in the air is a whole complex of political, economic, social changes. And then through these malleable, well-trained uh, disciples uh, of Sri Devi and Madhuri Dixit, between the three of them, they write a new story about the dancing figure. And the fact that they produce these hectic debates in within cultural discourse, the censorship battles around Choli Ke Piche Kya Hai or the Mr. India song, tells us that these weren't minor um, kind of impulses, that these were actually very central to the cultural project of the nation, and they were causing huge disturbances to it. So that we begin to think about, through the choreographer and the dancing heroine, we think about techniques that circulate between bodies, rather than being transmitted from one to the other, from guru to shishya, from you know teacher to disciple, that produces these hierarchies. When we think about circuits of creative labor between women. I hope I have illustrated how we then highlight uh, all of these other energies that are irrepressible. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. No, I mean, this is absolutely fascinating. And while kind of listening to this, I was kind of thinking, I mean, we are kind of a little bit digressing from the book, but just in since like, 
you're talking about queerness you're talking about like gender in a much more like a, a little bit of expansive notion i was thinking in terms of masculinity because now like from 2000s like i think the notion of masculinity like you would find like when uh, wahid rahman or vijayanti mala they are like kind of like coming emerging as like you know dancing stars men hardly dance like even in they dance like a little bit you will find like obviously we talked about kishore <laughs> kishore da doing some stuff and like amita bachchan also kind of doing some some stuff but things do have kind of changed a lot in terms of maybe like with the visibilization of the choreography uh, choreographer the emergence of the dance reality shows and also like with rithik shahid like from 2000 onwards now like in order to become a star actor you need to dance well as well so i think there's kind of also like different uh, registers of uh, gender getting manifested and uh, i don't know if you, if you have noticed that there is no such emphasis even if like the production numbers that we that you have talked about in the book there is no more emphasis on the facial gestures or the abhinaya it's more the body not so much the face anymore and like i was so blown away like you mentioned cid and like kahin pe nigah hai kahin pe nishana i'm like oh my god if someone like i would be blown away and like obviously pyasa and like that impact and that emphasis has kind of shifted so yeah i i don't know if you have kind of noticed these things and while i was reading your book and also that you know thinking of the dance numbers that i've grown up with i'm like there seems to be certain shifts and that's the fascinating part of uh, kind of thinking in terms of uh, in the dance numbers corporeal yes absolutely <laughs> i think that shift to the the male dancer being very visible now since the 1990s is again um, we can arrive at a more nuanced analysis of it if we think through the framework of a corporeal history right what is i say in the book i talk about dancing bodies as these interpolated materializations of biology history and technology if we take each of those terms we think about what are the shifts in masculinity in its codifications in its performance in the 1990s that allow the emergence of say shahid kapoor and rithik roshan they are training in dance schools why do dance schools come up they have a lot to do with saroj khan making the work of a choreographer visible shamak davar is training extremely privileged bombayites in a kind of south bombay or you know in in these kind of suddenly the backup dancers uh, who are often working class performers with their very strong unions are now being replaced by college students by by affluent college students and eventually by quote unquote caucasian backup dancers who are often from impoverished backgrounds in eastern europe and the former soviet republics right so the, those are also very complex stories because i'm often asked about that and sudden this the, the white backup dancer in bollywood today of course it gives you a visual background of whiteness but i think that whiteness is also complicated in these networks between the global the the kind of global south and east um and that these workers cine workers to use devashree mukherjee's term from her book bombay hustle um are uh, are also working in conditions of precarity produced by um the, the kind of conditions of late capitalism um but to return to your question i think there are i in a new um compiled in a new collected um as volume edited volume a companion to indian cinema 
uh, co-edited by Ranjani and Nipa Majumdar, um, I have an essay on the kind of gestural genealogies of male dancing, which goes from Master Bhagwan to Bachchan, and how Bachchan himself changes from his kind of comic dance performances like Mere Ang Neme, extremely queer performances, where he takes on multiple um, female roles, uh, to this very hyper-masculine Punjabi dancer of 2000s Bollywood, indicates to us industrial shifts and kind of socio-political shifts that produce a certain kind of male dancing body on screen. Um, and I think, yes, definitely. I mean, there is much more of a focus on the full body. Saroj Khan says, I hate how item numbers are now made because the choreographer is not as important as the editor. They chop everything up on, and they create the dance number on the editing table. I tend to also like the contemporary item number. I feel like my spectatorial joy is now coming from actually seeing the jhatkas of the editing. Um, and so what do people do with new technologies is an, also an important question, right? Why do we have this kind of um, attachment to the body as this um, complete and um, what is the word I'm looking for? Um, a kind of holistic join you know versus i think already what i'm seeing in the book is that the body is produced through these multiple it's a montage the body is an assemblage i think what the contemporary item number may, it just makes it even more apparent the the kind of assemblage nature of the dance the on screen dancing body it, and in both cases it has been done poorly and done well uh, so we might have and and also that to embrace our own tastes is not is not, you know, to be looked down upon. And actually the work that we do, our tastes do come into play over there. And that is what writing from a place of attention to pleasure will actually alert us to. Um, yes, there isn't as much Abhinaya, but I love watching the recreations of a lot of this kind of facial Abhinaya. I talk about the three body zones, right? In the book about the, the torso, the, the limbs and the face. There is a lot of attention to facial um, expression in reality shows and in TikTok. I am amazed at this kind of spectatorial recreation of affect. Um, so I feel like now I go to different places for those pleasures than the cinema itself. Um, I haven't even watched a lot of interesting item numbers recently. Uh, but what is so fascinating always is how this music and dance is traveling to places that you would not imagine and infecting other bodies um, that then bring back a renewed kind of energy to um, to Bollywood. Yes, absolutely. I mean, like my like I personally like Abhinaya, but that doesn't mean that I don't enjoy the numbers. I mean, it's anything rhythmic and I'm always stepping my feet, head, whatever that comes to my head, even in a supermarket, maybe. So, <laughs> so I completely agree on that. So coming to the kind of a little bit of last segment of our interview is like, so what are some of the challenges that you may have uh, encountered while doing this book project? Because I think we had talked about humble histories and, you know, uh, like at the risk of sounding a little rhetorical that can we ever write a finished history of, you know, the shadow figures and everything? Because I think that is also a kind of methodological 
problem or a conundrum that you have tackled in the book and something to kind of think in terms of future research and for like grad students who probably are venturing out uh, tackling this methodological problem. So, yeah. Dancing, uh, dancing women came very much at a time when there weren't enough books on film dance and uh, very few, in fact, on Indian film dance. Um, but in the, all the conversations I've been having since its publication, I'm just so excited by what scholars who are now working on their dissertations or their books are excited by. Um, so I am really looking forward to kind of thick descriptive ethnographies of actual training and rehearsal, philosophical inquiries into, say, the temporality of performance, of dancing, of rehearsal, um, and absolutely centrally a discussion of caste, which Indian film studies, despite its robust scholarship in the last 30 years, uh, is only now beginning to pay attention centrally to questions of caste. And I think uh, performers um, who are also writing and articulating this are from, for example, from hereditary uh, traditions, from hereditary performing cultures like Nritya Pillai, are alerting us to the absolute centrality of talking about caste-based power that is exerted both on stage in the music sabhas um, and on screen. And while I hint at it, I don't go in depth into it because mine was also this kind of massive project of how do we even begin to talk about film dance, right? What are the main questions? So I think it will fit very much as that, as a book that opens up those many questions from an author who is extremely excited to see what other histories are, are going to come and co-choreograph with this book, are going to counter this book, um, are going to reveal other other figures that might only be passing mentions in my book and that I would really lo- love to learn more about. I think the, the term hesitant histories that you mentioned is from an essay that is uh, that I have written that will come out um, in a while in the Journal of Cinema and Media Studies on the use of song booklets as a primary archival source. How do we read dance, which is, you know, uh, a live uh, kinesthetic experience through song booklets, which only contain text and some images. Um, but what they alert us to is the importance of speculation, of hesitant histories, of humble histories, um, so that actually Shadnavos and Azuri are served well rather than underserved by the lack of archival information. We can never close off their stories. Um, and this will be the case for uh, all of the narratives that will come to the fore when we start thinking and really examining deeply the unaccounted for or the under-archived work of caste oppressed laborers in our film industries. Um, these are not the stories that will that will that we'll find in memoirs, in autobiographies of say female stars that we have access to. Right. So they require completely different methodologies. And I think, for example, documentaries like the Saroj Khan story have helped me have access to some of those voices. So now when I think about new methodologies, I feel I just have to go with a camera or just with a phone and interview people um, and go. And especially the people who are old and, you know, those histories that the the danger of or the risk involved in corporeal histories is that you need those bodies to tell their histories and we need people to go and 
capture those histories while many of these Sine workers are still alive. Um, so I think what I have as a theoretical framework now requires the actual labor of scholars, of researchers, and that is actually why I love digital social media, because there are so many people outside of academic networks doing this work. So we need to co-choreograph these histories with them rather than only within the ivory tower. Yeah, I can't agree more. Yeah, it's something like I also sometimes feels kind of, you know, stifled while just doing kind of archival work because I think it's always helpful to complement each other, especially if you are working with about working with and about dancers and sometimes just finding them in the archives is not enough. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, thanks for the cues. So just to kind of finally ask you what your new project is about, uh, I think you you are working on a project titled Black and Brown Media Intimacies and Cultural Traffic Jams between India and the Caribbean, uh, examining the effective engagements of Caribbean spectators with Indian cinema and the impact of Caribbean performance cultures on Indian film industries. So if you would like to uh, tell us more, like why this particular connection, why India and Caribbean, and if you would want to share any interesting snippet from your ongoing research. So this is a very tentative title, but it gives you a sense of what I'm thinking about. I'm early in this project and the pandemic hasn't helped <laughs> with not being able to do research travel. But my first tenure track job in 2014 was at the University of the West Indies in Trinidad. Um, and so I found myself going as a U.S. trained academic, but I was living in Delhi traveling to the, to Trinidad to teach there. I taught in the film program over there. Um, and while I knew about the indenture labor diaspora in the Caribbean, which, you know, um, um, two and a half million people were transported um, across the late 19th century to, till 1917 to various plantation economies, uh, Fiji, Mauritius, South Africa, and in the Caribbean, Trinidad, Jamaica, Guyana, Suriname, etc. And so while I knew about that history, what I wasn't prepared for when I went to Trinidad is the kind of deep and long presence of Hindi cinema uh, in, in Trinidad and how central a role it's played in articulations of ethnicity, of gender, of belonging, of citizenship, who belongs, who is a proper Caribbean subject, uh, who is modern and who is pre-modern. Indian cinema is a big player in all of these national discussions in Guyana, Suriname, uh, Trinidad. Those are the three locations that I'm looking at. Um, but I was also, so it's, but it's not a simple study of we're studying Indian cinema in these multiple locations that other than Hollywood, we also have the global presence of popular Indian cinemas, etc. It's actually doing this multi-way work. So I think the co-choreography collaborative work has stayed with me as a kind of defining framework to approach anything that I look at. So I'm looking at multi-way traffics and I call them traffic jams. Uh, I'm also thinking about how uh, Caribbean cultures are informing Indian the Indian, various Indian film industries, the, the audio sphere, the kind of media sphere of India at different moments. Um, I'm currently working on the 70s and 80s, but also contemporary digital cultures that are about black and brown communities. Um, as an example, I was thinking of uh, when I was teaching a course on Indian cinema in Trinidad, I had students do a, a paper on interviewing 
members of their family or others on the impact of Indian cinema on them. And I had an Afro-Trinidadian student interview her aunt who said, when Amitabh Bachchan died in movie after movie, I would sit down and weep for hours. And she said, you know, Amitabh Bachchan united races for a lifetime. And I found that really interesting, this kind of the the work that Indian cinema was doing, which was being shown every Sunday on television, to bring together what were very fraught black and brown communities with different histories of oppression on these um, islands. Um, and then how do we think about kind of uh, the those really complex engagements between black and brown uh, communities in the global north as well, where many of us are now located, right? Um, how do we account for anti-blackness within um, Asian communities within Indian and subcontinental uh, South Asian communities? How do we also think about the erasure and invisibility of Indo-Caribbean communities in the global north? And how the figure of the traffic jam allows us to talk both about intimacy and friction simultaneously. These are not some happy love stories across the global south, but they're also um, extremely empowering stories. Through the, the frictions, Intimacy is always a complex affair, and that you know when we when we look at it from all of these directions, much more complex narratives and directives for us about solidarity across difference emerge. And so, I'm thinking right now in a very manifesto voice, um, but that is the work that I'm hoping um, to do slowly. It's very hard to track these underground networks. How did records travel between? the Caribbean and the U and India. And it's often through networks of Europe or the Gulf, um, et cetera, right? So it's tracing these multiple informal networks that I'm very excited about right now. I mean, that's fascinating. And I was again taken uh, taken by the word traffic jam because this is so much an Indian English kind of like always talking about traffic that I don't think anybody uh, talks about traffic jam anymore. Just similar, like I remember like Professor Anjali Arundeka when she came here to give a talk, we talked about uh -huh. time pass. Like nobody talks about time <laughs> pass. Like, <laughs> this is such an Indian English. So I think that kind of captures what you're trying to uh, say about the intimacy and the conflict. And I think conflict is very central to what we call intimacy. So I think that's really fascinating. Have you like, what are your archives? Like, I mean, just kind of interested. To I think know. you're paying attention to the vernacular is really important for this project. Thinking about the traffic jam, thinking about chutney, which is a musical form in Trinidad, all of these mixtures, right, of uh, uh, these kind of new ways of thinking about hybridity and creolization. Um, my archives are currently interviews with people like Babla of Babla and Kanchan Orchestra. Um, he performed extensive, both of them performed extensively across the Caribbean and for its diasporas in North America, I interviewed him on Zoom, which was very interesting. So I'm also thinking about methodologies, pandemic methodologies, um, you know, playback singers like Parvati Khan, who are, she's Trinidadian. Um, yeah, and so interviewing people within the industries interview and looking at TikTok and Instagram reels and videos uh, to think about people's performances. So a lot of drag queens are employing Bollywood music or pushing back against it in order to kind of um, to 
for certain performances, gender performances. So what are the intimacies and frictions there between Bollywood's figuration of gender through music and dance and these kind of queer performances? Um, so my archives right now are very wide and cinematic archives in the Caribbean are uh, sparse. And so one needs to be very creative with one's methods. And I am looking forward to traveling and interviewing you know, people who are working in the single screen theaters, um, viewers. So it's going to be a traffic jam of multiple methodologies as well. Um, and also going back to earlier histories, all of these are subaltern vernacular histories, right? The the mashups that produce chutney or soka or beta gana in Suriname, um, talking to small time distributors, all of these will be the modes of um, thinking of the of these histories, and then a kind of larger conceptual theoretical uh, turn to using Jose Munoz, um, thinking about brownness, thinking about political blackness in Britain. So, I think it's evident that the project is in its early stages, and that it will take all of this work to kind of capture the multiple traffics across these locations. That's really fascinating. And I mean, all the very best. And I think uh, I mean, we would be looking forward to your new book. And I mean, thanks so much for talking. I think uh, I didn't even notice the time. It's, it's been an hour that we are chatting. So, 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 I mean, I really wanted to thank you again uh, for agreeing to do this. And it's always, always a pleasure to talk to you. So thank you so yeah. much, Pratichi. I'm looking forward to your work. <laughs>